Deuteronomy chapter 1. Um, a message about the faithfulness of God. Let me give you some good news. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that if we are faithless, God remains faithful. This is great news because what that means is that uh, no matter how badly we stumble and fall, if we belong to Christ, if He is our Savior and we have truly been born again, God will always be faithful to us because He cannot deny Himself. God's very nature is faithfulness. And uh, that's good news because, you know, if, if it were up to us to hold on to salvation, we wouldn't hold on to it. I mean, it took one sin to condemn Adam. And, you know, just because you have come to faith in Christ and received forgiveness, that doesn't mean you're still not a sinner. But, you know, God's grace is what began our salvation. God's grace is what continues it, and God's grace is what brings it to the end. This is the faithfulness of God. And this is a theme that really flows heavily throughout the first four chapters of Deuteronomy, because what Moses does here in these first four chapters is he's recounting the history the history of um, the last 40 years. And, uh, you know, the book of Numbers shows us one failure after another. Uh, what was this joke I saw on the internet the other day? I don't know, something about, I think, a father reading the book of Numbers to his kids at bedtime story. <laughs> and the kids are like, ah! <laughs> something I forget exactly. But we, we see in Numbers, you see just one failure after another, and yet God was still there with them the entire way. So when we come here to the end of this 40 years, right before they're going to go in and launch the conquest, uh, the invasion of the land, Moses brings the historical background to say, let me remind you here of um, you know, what God has done for the last 40 years. And as I pointed out last week in this introduction message, a historical narrative was uh, a standard part of what we call a suzerainty vassal treaty, which were treaties, covenants that uh, would get imposed upon conquered nations, where the conquering country, the conquering kingdom would say, okay, let me give you the historical background here. Here's what has happened. Now here's the agreement that you're going to sign and agree to stay faithful to me because I've conquered you. And the form of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, it has been you know, widely recognized by uh, scholars, uh, good scholars, conservative scholars, that the form of the book of Deuteronomy actually echoes and mirrors that suzerainty vassal treaty. A suzerain is the master nation, and then the vassal is the conquered nation. Moses is giving them the history showing, here's the history behind this relationship of me bringing you out of Egypt, and you need to stay faithful. Tonight we're going to look at the first two chapters that focus on the history. I was looking at the first four chapters, but you know, what I'm trying to do with you guys is, uh, you know, what I feel is faithfulness to the Scripture to expose you to it and to read it to you, and, and then to bring out the truth, the theology that we find in these passages. And, uh, you know, I did Leviticus all in one message, you know, so <laughs> spared you on that one, didn't I? <laughs> Some, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I know anybody that's ever preached through verse by verse from Leviticus. <laughs> but we, we see the truth that is here because all Scripture is God-breathed. Well, over the last 40 years, Israel has blown it. God has stayed faithful, and that's because he is faithful. So we're going to begin by going to the first little section here, which is verses 1 to 4, which in the form of these treaties is called the preamble, kind of like the introduction to it. I'm just going to read these verses and then make just a couple brief comments on verses 1 to 4, uh, because we did address it 
in the introduction last week. Verse 1, these are the words which Moab, uh, Moses, spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Aravah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahav. Now it's 11 days from Horeb, by the way of Mount Sair, to Kadesh Barnea. But in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him to give to them after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Edrei. We thank you, O God, for your faithfulness. If it were not for your faithfulness, we would have no hope. You're a good God, and we want to understand your grace better so that we can love you better and serve you better. So use this time to help us know you, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you saw last week, uh, the book of Deuteronomy happens on the plains of Moab. So if you were to go from eastward from the land of Israel, which, uh, you know, before they conquered, it was called the land of Canaan. But if you were to go eastward, you come to the Jordan Valley. The Jordan Valley is where you go way down in the desert. Uh, The Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level, lowest place on the face of the earth. And then if you go across the Jordan Valley, you come to the other side, to uh, what's called the Transjordan. In modern day, that would be the country of Jordan. But in ancient times, if you were looking kind of on the northern side of that area, on the east of the Dead Sea, and the east of the Jordan Valley, you had Ammon, Moab, and Edom, the three ancient countries that were there on that eastern side, Ammon, Moab, and Edom. And it was in Moab that they launched their invasion uh, to go right across the Jordan Valley. Going across the Jordan Valley is not that far. You know, maybe uh, you know, five to ten miles to go from one side of the valley to the other. They were there at Moab, and uh, that's where they launched the invasion. We see this in verse 1. Some of these places we are familiar with uh, in terms of place names. Other places we do not know where they, where they were exactly, but it really doesn't matter. We also saw last week, as we see here in verse 2, that even though it should have been an 11-day journey to go from Mount Horeb, which is the same thing as Mount Sinai, it's another name, but to go from Mount Horeb, which is the middle of the Sinai Peninsula, you know, maybe 11 days at the most to get up to the edge of the Promised Land, the end of Canaan, the edge of Canaan, at a place called Kadesh Barnea. 11 days. How long did it take them before they finally launched the invasion? 40 years. This is kind of like putting it to side by side and saying, okay, these guys really didn't work out like it was supposed to. You know, it's kind of like Gilligan's Island. What should have been a three-hour cruise ended up being 98 episodes over the next three years, you know? That was, a, that was a bad boat journey. Israel really blew it. However, despite their disbelief and despite their failure, God stayed faithful and preserved them. Why did God preserve them over 40 years? He's faithful. He's Yahweh. Matter of fact, you know, when you go back to Exodus chapter 3, well, who am I going to say sent me? I'm Yahweh. I am who I am. I'm the self-existent God. I'm the eternal God. And then when you get to Exodus chapter 6, you know, there's an interesting comment where God says, now I appeared to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. But now, but I did not appear to them as Yahweh. And, you know, now you see the name Yahweh starting all the way in Genesis chapter 2. The the name of God, the Lord, Yahweh. 
But the idea behind Yahweh, as you look at him using this name, this more or less personal name with them, is I'm the faithful God who keeps my promise. I'm the Lord your God. Well, God is staying faithful to the promises that he made to the patriarchs. He's giving them the land that he swore to Abraham six or seven hundred years earlier because he swore these promises 2100 B.C. This is 1400 B.C. right now, 1406 B.C. God is fulfilling his promises. I'm sure that there may have been times back in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob where they would have thought, man, man I want to I have that deed on this land right now. I want it done. Come on, you know, what's taking you so long? You know, we, uh, we, we have to remember that he's God and we're not God. And, you know, we don't know what his uh, plan and purpose and everything that it includes, his promises. And because he's a faithful God, that's also why we know he's going to fulfill his promises in the future. He's going to restore this earth from sin and curse. He's going to bring the kingdom of Christ to this world forever and ever and ever. He's going to restore Israel from its apostasy and bring them back into a covenant relationship uh, and settle them in their land and his temple in Jerusalem. How do I know it's going to happen? Because the Bible says so. He's a faithful God. If he said he's going to do it. So here, verses 1 to 4, we have this preamble uh, to the entire book of Deuteronomy. Now we come to verses 1, uh, chapter 1 through chapter 4. Again, we're going to just walk through the first two chapters. We're going to do a little bit more a little more depth in terms of some of the comments. Um, But this is part of that historical narrative in the first four chapters. He's reminding Israel of the faithfulness of God. No matter what you've done, He's there in your corner if you belong to Him. I remember back when I was in junior high school, uh, I had a friend call me up one night, hey, you know, such and such and such. Let's go get in trouble. Although he didn't say the words, let's go get in trouble, but that's what ended up happening. So we went out and we did bad stuff. He got caught. And of course, you know, a few hours later, the police come to my door as well, middle of the night. And, uh, you know, I got in some bad trouble for some stupid stuff in junior high school. And, uh, you know, my dad said, all right, you know, that was really a stupid thing that you guys did. But he said, don't worry, I'm in your corner. That meant a lot to me. I had a good dad, you know? We all have our faults and weaknesses, you know, every one of us does, right? But, you know, I had a good dad, you know? Like, yeah, you really screwed up. Don't worry, we're going to get through it. And in a sense, you know, this is how we see God's grace operating with his own people. Now, if, if you do not, if you're not willing to bow the knee to God's son, and trust what God did for you when he put Christ on the cross to take your sin. If you're not willing to trust him for what Christ did, you have no grace at all that's going to come to you. But if Christ is your Lord, Jesus himself said, the Father loves you because you've loved me. (laughs) The Father loves you because you have loved me. And, you know, we, we see the faithfulness of God to his people throughout the generations. Now, as you go through the first four chapters, the way I uh, see this uh, flow of events, there are 13 historical phases of Israel's 40 years of wandering. We're going to look at the first six of these right now tonight, and it begins in verses 1, 5 to 8, 
the command to leave Mount Horeb. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through the passage, make observations, pull out theological gold nuggets, and apply it. So 1.5, across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying, the Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb, saying, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Aravah, in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Negev, in the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites, and Lebanon as far as the great river, the great river Euphrates. See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which Yahweh swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to them and their descendants after them. So he's recounting uh, the last 40 years. And the beginning point here is what God swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see these promises in the book of Genesis. You know, it starts off in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 21, chapter 35. God says, I am giving you this land as an eternal possession. He says, an eternal possession. Now, the Mosaic Covenant that came along 700 years after the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, stipulated that for you to enjoy, for you to presently enjoy the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant, you have to be in a right covenant relationship with God. And if you turn away from God, it says in the book of Deuteronomy, then judgments are going to come upon you. It's not going to annul the promises that God swore to Abraham, but you're going to suffer a loss of blessing until the day comes when God brings you back and restores you. And this is what, what, so what you have is the law of Moses, the Sinaitic covenant, is a covenant that administers the promises and blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. It administers the promises and blessings, which is exactly what the new covenant does when God restores Israel at the return of Christ. It is a covenant that will administer blessings to his people, to the, uh, to the nation of Israel. Well, God swore these promises, and here it gives a brief description of the land. You know, the land of Israel, basically, uh, round numbers, is about 250 miles from top to bottom, north to south, starts way up there at the Euphrates River, and it goes down to a place called the Brook of Egypt, which is not the Nile. It's, 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 a, it's a, a brook that is down in the Sinai Peninsula. So you've got about 250 miles from top to bottom, and in round numbers, about 65 miles from the Mediterranean uh, to the, uh, the Jordan Valley on the east. You have a brief description of it right here. Eugene Merrill, the great commentator, says, The great extent of the land, as far as the river Euphrates, reflects the ideal inheritance that God had promised to the patriarchal ancestors as part of the covenant pledge that he had made to Abraham and the fathers in the book of Genesis. Now, Israel never uh, possessed all of that region. If you go back to the golden age of David and Solomon, you see that they had a hegemony where they had rule over that entire region, but it really was not theirs. And what they had rulership over for a short time was a pretty short time. You know, God's promise is that this is going to be an eternal kingdom. So Israel, if you look at the days of David and Solomon, you say, man, this is really looking like really pretty good stuff here. I wonder if this is going to see the fulfilling of all these things that God swore to Abraham. Now, it didn't. 
God swore these promises to Israel. Now, of course, we know that um, the Babylonians came along uh, in 605 B.C. Israel lived in the land from 1406 to 605, 800 years, and then finally God said, okay, I've had enough of you. It's time to judge your sin. Israel was permitted uh, to come back to the land after the Persians overthrew the Babylonians in 539. But that was not the fulfilling of this eschatological restoration that God says. But God allowed them to come back into the land and live in the land for the next 500 years. God even told them, rebuild the temple. So King Cyrus allowed them to rebuild a temple. King Cyrus told them to rebuild a temple. He says, your God is the one that gave me all of this kingdom. And he told me that you're supposed to rebuild your temple, so go rebuild it. Do some sacrifices and prayers for me while you're at it, because I know that he is the one that gave me all these things. And so Israel came back, and they lived in the land for the next 500 and some years, and then God fulfilled his promise and brought them their promised king, right? And what was their reply? We will not have this man reign over us. And they rejected the Son of God. Really caught God by surprise, right? Right? No, no precious. Uh, you know, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, he says that Christ was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27, it says that everything that happened with Pilate and the, the wicked Jewish leaders, it says they were doing what God's hand predestined to occur. The cross of Christ was not a cosmic accident. Now, it was wicked, unbelieving people that murdered Jesus Christ. They were making that choice to kill the Son of God, and yet it says it was God's eternal purpose they were carrying out. And this is the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and God doesn't say, figure it all out, but it shows us in the Bible that this is how God works, is through the choices and events of, of life. So anyhow, what happened is, is that... Uh, you know, 2,000 years ago, God brought them their king. And, you know, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem there in Luke 19, you know, he saw the city and they were all praising him and saying, we believe that you're the son of David. And he wept when he looked at the city and he said, if you only knew this day the things that would bring peace, but you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So they had the opportunity of seeing these kingdom blessings but they're not here yet. They will be fulfilled. They're going to be fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns. This is not that complicated. Well, okay, it is that complicated. <laughs> but we can understand it. God made uh, a blessing available to Israel, and in his sovereignty, they rejected it. So right now, what we have are 2,000 years of church history in between where God is catapulting the message of grace into the whole world in a way that never happened and never would have happened uh, through only the nation of Israel. You know, that's why we're here today. You know, yellow, red, black, and white, we're all precious in his sight. You know, you look at all this, God's grace has just catapulted into the world and God is using all these things, but he is going to return one day and fulfill these promises that he swore. Okay, now we come down here to verses uh, 9 through 18 and we come to the second phase of these wilderness wanderings. This here is the appointment of leaders to help Moses. Now, for those of you who have a big family, um, you know, it's, it's a challenge to try to raise a big family. Uh, you know, we had a fairly good-sized family with six kids, 
You know, uh, there's others in here that had six kids. I only wanted two. You know, uh, but you know, we just kept having kids. And then it's like, okay, you know, I talk about going into uh, pastoral ministry, and it's like, you know, like my family members are saying, you're going to be poor. You're not going to be able to raise, you know, all these kids. But, you know, all these years later, it's like, God did it just fine. But you've got all these challenges, and that's only with six kids. You know, imagine having two million children. Moses is leading a nation of two million people. How are you going to do it? You can't do it by yourself. He needed help. So that's what we see. One nine, I spoke to you at that time saying, I'm not able to bear the burden of you alone. The Lord your God has multiplied you and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. May the Lord your God, may the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as he has promised you. But how can I alone bear the load and burden of you and your strife? Bunch of whining kids. Choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes, and I will appoint them as your heads. Now you answered me and said, the thing which you've said is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and officers for your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, saying, here are the cases between you, uh, between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen, or alien who is with him, you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I'll hear it. I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Now, the background of this was in Exodus chapter 18. And it was also, if you remember, who was the guy that kind of helped to institute this leadership structure? Jethro. Who? Jethro. That's right. Uh, the man with a, all right, never mind. The, with a sixth grade education. <laughs> yeah, Jethro. <laughs> That's right. Some people give the, yeah, Jethro, he says, I got a sixth grade education. Jethro Bodine, the hill, Beverly Hillbillies. All right, so Jethro said, Moses, you can't lead this entire nation by yourself. You're going to kill yourself. And, you know, to try to implement the law of Moses and see it have its outworking was impossible. So what happened is that God says, you need some help. Your father-in-law is right. You need some help. So Moses went to the nation and said, okay, recommend some of your godly leaders from your tribes and we will put them in and it put in a structure now i think it's really interesting when you look at um political structures you know i just and i don't know very much about political structures but you think about federal government with all of its stuff and then a state government and all of this stuff and then counties all this stuff and then cities and all this stuff and they've got people with radar guns at every level you know uh but you have, you know, all these structures to implement the law. Now, unfortunately, we live in a uh, situation where laws get multiplied every single year, more and more laws. God gave Israel one law. It was an unchanging law. But that's what they needed was a judicial system. This is primarily a judicial system, not primarily political or police, although those elements float out of it. But this is for implementing God's truth to the entire nation. You're keeping order for two million people. Guess what? God is the one who told them what to do. This is God's grace at work with his people Israel. Because the structures weren't there before. God said, okay, here's how we're going to do it. Moses carried it out, and he implemented a structure. This was God's grace at work with his people. 
And the reason why God's grace was with them is because God is faithful to his people. I mean, think about there in Romans chapter 8 where Paul says, listen, you know, he says, uh, we know that all things work for good for those who love God. Those that have been called according to his purpose. And then he describes those who have been called according to God's eternal purpose. We've been foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified. And Paul says, well, what are we going to say? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all? Listen, if God gave you his son, Jesus Christ, he's good. And you may say, what's happening to me hurts right now. It hurts. Well, a sin-cursed world brings a lot of pain. But God gave you his son, Jesus Christ. Don't ever think that he's not good. And he didn't already judge you and send you to hell. He's merciful. We deserve it, but he's withheld that. Instead, he gave us his son. He's sovereign, he's good, and he's merciful, and he's wise. He's trustworthy. Now, that brings us down to verses 19. We've seen two phases of this historical wandering. Now we come to verses 19 to 25, a third phase of their wanderings, the sending of the 12 spies. This event takes place in Numbers 13 uh, from the edge of a place that was called Kadesh Barnea, right on the southern edge of the Promised Land. Before you wage war, you better check out what the territory looks like. So, verse 19, we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you've come to the hill country of the Amorites, which means the Canaanites, uh, which the Lord our God is about to give us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Moses knows that they're going to have a victory. And the reason why he's confident is because he's seen the faithfulness of God throughout his whole life, you know? I mean, he looks at the history in Egypt. He saw God take 70 people in the book of Genesis and turn them into 2 million people. That's God's faithfulness. He preserved them through 400 years of living in Egypt. He crushed Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt. He took them through the Red Sea. He fed them and watered them for 40 years. He gave them victory over enemy attacks. God's very nature is faithfulness. And so Moses, they're standing here at the edge of the land. Moses says, God's going to do it. I mean, like, you know, like uh, we were reading earlier, you know, if he cares about a sparrow and he knows about a sparrow, how much more? That's what the Son of God said. He says, you know, he knows and cares about the sparrow. He knows and cares about you. So verse 22 We have an order to send in spies. Then all of you approached me and said, Let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring us back word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. The thing pleased me, and I took twelve of your men, one for each tribe. They turned and they went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out for you. you got to check things out. There's a mission to accomplish. So Moses came to the people and said, Your mission? Should you choose to accept? I, I, I do that with Shelby all the time. And she knows, I guess, Shelby, your mission. Here's the mail key. Go get the mail. She says, if I choose to accept. 
So they uh, had their mission, and then Moses says, and, and this will self-destruct in five seconds. <laughs> Verse 24 uh, speaks about this place uh, called Eshkol. This is just speaking about the beginning of their spy mission. But there, there really was uh, a mission that covered the entire land, all 250 miles from north to south and 65 miles. This was a massive reconnaissance mission. Verse 25, they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and they brought it down to us and they brought it back a report and said, it's a good land which the Lord your God is about to give us. So this is just really a capsulized, summarized statement here, but they went throughout the entire land and it was a very comprehensive reconnaissance mission. Now, um, Israel, you know, has, uh, you know, some areas that are really arid, desolate, desert area, but it has some very, very rich areas as well. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, um, a jungle if you go up into uh, northern Galilee along what's called the Banyas, where the Jordan River comes out from Mount Hermon in that area. Really gorgeous. It's like going up to, you know, the South Platte River and really beautiful places, so, you know, it, and it had a lot of good farming land, great land for wheat, great land for grapes. So they brought back a massive cluster of grapes from uh, the most recent place, which was Hebron, right there on the southern edge. And they brought back this massive, you know, cluster of grapes. And that's what the word eshkol means in Hebrew is cluster. And they're carrying on, you know, a huge, you know, pole in between themselves. They said, it's a pretty nice place, but... Things are not going to go this smoothly. Things don't always go as smoothly as, the, as you want, right? <laughs> like, hey, we could, we could do this really. It's going to be easy, nice and smooth. Rarely do things go like that, right, Al? No, not, not always. So we come down here to verses 26 to uh, 46, and we come to a fourth phase, rebellion against God. They refuse to believe God's promise. Verse 26 Yet you were not willing to go up, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are bigger and taller than we, and the cities are large and fortified to heaven. Besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim there. What a bunch of whiners. God hates us. He wants to kill us out here. Now, what is, what is this deal about the sons of Anakim? I want to give a little bit of explanation on something here. When you read in Numbers chapter 13, which is the parallel account of where this took place, it says that they went northwards and they came up to the town called Hebron, which was a very ancient city that was about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. And as you look at Numbers chapter 13, it says that the spies went up, and then when they came back from Hebron, they said, now Hebron had a very ancient history. I mean, that's, that's where Abraham and Sarah and, you know, a number of the family members are buried in Hebron. They didn't say anything about, hey, man, we got to go up, see where Abraham's buried. They came back and said, man, those people are really big up there. As one writer puts it here, these guys were too preoccupied with the sandal sizes of the men that lived there. Now, who are these sons of Anakim? Now, back in Numbers, it said that they were giant descendants of Anak. So, reading from Numbers, turn with me to Numbers 13 for a second. And then I want you to be ready to look at Genesis chapter 6 with me as well. Numbers chapter 13, come down here to verse 28. 
Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified, very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea, by the side of the Jordan. And Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for surely we will overcome it. But the men who had gone up with them said, no, we're not able to go up against the people, for they're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we've gone and spying out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. We also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. All right, where do we see the word Nephilim? All right, turn with me now to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, because he is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown, meaning men with a reputation. Okay, now you know that there is an idea that does not come out of the Bible, but there is an idea that floats around that says, well, what happened here is that demons, back in the days before the flood, that demons came and had sex with women, and it produced a mongrel offspring that are called the Nephilim. You've heard that viewpoint. I'm sure, if you, I'm sure you have. And then they will go to passages like Jude, verse 6, and 1 Peter chapter 3, and Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. And they'll say, well, you see right here in the New Testament, it tells us the same thing. Well, let me just tell you this. None of those passages in the New Testament say anything at all about uh, demons having sex with women and producing some kind of mongrel offspring. None of those passages in the New Testament tell us that Christ went into hell after his cross and during the three days when his body was in the grave. None of those passages say that Christ went into this uh, netherworld and made a victory proclamation to these demons. And that's what the doctrine gets taught is that Christ went in and said, hey, I had the victory, you guys lost. That is not biblical. Now, there's quite a few people who hold that view, and you know, I, I'll you know, recognize that. But I don't believe that any of those passages in the New Testament teach that. And Genesis chapter 6 does not teach that as well. You know, if you talk about a man who has a relationship with God, he's a son of God. That's what the Hebrew construct relationship, it says, here is a believer. He is a man of God. He is a son of God. Now, it is true in the book of Job that the expression is used to refer to holy angels, and so you see this in Job 1, Job 2, Job 38, that uh, the holy angels uh, are referred to as the sons of God. This is not the book of Job. This is the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible written by Moses. And it is illegitimate to take that expression from Job and say, well, that's got to be what this means right here. Now, that's the argument that people use. They say, well, in Job, you see that it can refer to angels. That is true. But I don't believe that's referring here. The context of Genesis chapter 6 is this. It is the wickedness of mankind. And God says, 
I've got only one solution left here. I have to bring a universal catastrophic judgment uh, to wipe out all of these unsaved people. The expression, I believe, is really uh, meaning of this. The interpretation is, it's talking about godly men, unbelieving men, intermarrying with ungodly women, and it was making a danger to the messianic promises that had been given to Adam and Eve and passed on from generation to generation. There was a threat because of a breakdown of the family units with this intermarriage. But the, the, the point that I'm coming to right here is that when we look at verse 4, and it talks about the Nephilim, you know, uh, you know, people say, oh, well, these were mongrel offspring of demons and women. Well, f- okay, here's another point. Uh, there was only one fall in the angelic realm, and that happened in between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. There were not multiple falls in the angelic realm. It is really, really straining uh, the idea that we could call a son of God a demon. That's just really stretched to do that. Furthermore, Jesus said that angels are not sexual beings. Angels do not procreate. Angels cannot procreate. An angel cannot procreate with a human woman. What this is, this is simply speaking about uh, men and women producing children. And some of these children, they call them the Nephilim. But the Nephilim were nothing more than giants. And if you think about, to use an illustration, uh, remember Arnold Schwarzenegger's role called Conan the Barbarian? You know, talking about like ancient, you know, Acadia and you know, the Mesopotamians, and here's this, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, this really giant warrior. That would be the kind of thing that you're talking about right here. A warrior with a reputation. That's what the word mighty man means, is warriors. Warriors of renown, of reputation. Man, wow. You ever seen Goliath? <sighs> that guy is unreal. Have you ever seen Conan? This is what the Nephilim were. They were giant warriors. Now, as you look at this, this is where I'm going to walk you through some of these passages right here. We see this because it says here in Genesis that these Nephilim, these giant warriors, they were there before the flood. But guess what? When you come to the book of Numbers 13 and the book of Deuteronomy, we find out that these giant gene peoples were really quite widespread in the ancient world. The Nephilim, coming back here to to Numbers 13, uh, as we see here, the Nephilim are the sons of Anak. The sons of Anak, or the Anakim, are the Nephilim. These are the same giant gene people. Eugene Merrill says that when the spies came to the edge of uh, Kadesh Barnea, the reasons for their despair were the strength and height both of the cities and the people. These were the Anakites, were giant gene people. Merrill goes on to say that the Anakites, or the Anakim, took their name from a certain Anak, who was the forefather of Arba. All right? What town did Arba establish and found? Got to be a good Bible scholar to get this one. Hebron. So Arba was the one that founded Hebron, and that was the place where they first went in to begin to launch their invasion. Well, the spies went into Hebron, and then they came back and said, man, these guys are giants. Well, that's because they were the Anakim. Now, later on, as you go to the book of Joshua, we see that Joshua and Caleb defeated the Anakites in Hebron, and they drove them out. And when they drove them out, guess where they went and settled? They settled in the coastline. Merrill goes on to say that they drove them out from central Canaan to the coastal plain that later was called Philistia, the Philistines, and there they founded cities like Gaza, 
Ashdod, and Gath. Who lived in Gath? Goliath, the Philistine. Goliath was one of the Nephilim. Just a man, but a giant man. But these are giant gene people. Uh, And you see different names that are used depending upon which ethnic group you're talking about. Like if you look at the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites, they had different names. Uh, They were called the Emims, the Zamzumims, and the Rephaims. These are all giant gene people. Go back with me to Deuteronomy. Look at chapter 2. Notice down here in verse, when they come to uh, Moab, notice here in verse uh, 10, the Emim lived there, formerly a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim, verse 11. Like the Anakim, they're also regarded as Rephaim, but the Moabites called them the Emim. So you've got several names for these different giant people groups. Now, if you went back into Genesis chapter 14, back in the days of Abraham, which was 700 years earlier, we read about that situation where there was the war, where the kings of Mesopotamia invaded. And it says, in the 14th year of Shedar Laomer, the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim, the Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shaveh. All giants. So these are people down in the Jordan Valley where you had Sodom, Gomorrah, and all of these places. These giant gene people were quite widespread. Look again at Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 20. And when you come to Ammon, Ammon is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim, another one of the giant gene people. For the Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Ammonites called him the Zamzumim, a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. And the Anakim are called the Nephilim. But the Lord destroyed them before them and dispossessed them and settled in their place. So, you know, this, this idea that, you know, demons had sex with women back in Genesis chapter 6, it's not uncommon. But uh, I firmly think that uh, that's just a false idea. It rose up in extra-biblical literature, and it's, uh, you know, quite widely held by people. These are simply giant gene human beings. And as we saw, said that in Joshua, you see that they drove them out. But when they drove them out from central Canaan and the Jordan Valley, those Canaanite tribes of giant genes went and settled in the coastline. And that's where Goliath came from. So you still had them 400 years later in the days of David. And we know that giant genes still exist today, right? They're not very common. Who's a famous giant? Andre, Andre Fezzik, you know, the, the uh, Princess Bride, you know? Uh, have you guys ever seen The Princess Bride? You should watch it. We'll come and have, we'll have a party and watch uh, The Princess Bride. Okay, now, here's a point of application in all of this, okay? Uh, these guys were big, but um, the, the, a point of application is this. They sent up 12 spies. Hey, okay, let's just get 12 guys to go up. Ten of those guys were not believers, And those 10 unbelievers that they put into leadership really caused grief for the nation of Israel. Be careful about the people that you put into leadership. People that don't trust God and don't trust God's word. And don't doubt the power of God. All right, coming back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 29. Then I said to you, do not be shocked and don't fear them. The Lord your God goes before you. He will fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. God already crushed Egypt. And he, he was with you in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God 
He repeats that idea. Yahweh Eloheka, the, the Lord your God, just as he carries a man, carries his son, in all the way in which you walked until you came to this place. But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you, to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day, to show you the way in which you should go. God was there the entire way, and they've seen God there the entire way, and yet they're just not trusting him. Listen, think about your own life, okay? Your physical life. I mean, we, we say that we entrust him with our eternal soul, right? If we can entrust him with our eternal soul, can't we entrust him, you know, uh, for uh, our physical life? Of course we can. God's never the problem. We're the problem. Like back there in Matthew chapter 8 when, you know, they were, uh, the boat was about to sink. And Jesus is sleeping in the bottom of the boat. <laughs> Jesus is there in the bottom of the boat sawing logs, and uh, they wake him up. Don't you care? We're about to die. And what did Jesus say to them? Why? Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? So verse 34. The Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry. And he took an oath, saying, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land which... I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and his sons I will give the land on which he is set on foot, because he has followed the Lord fully. The Lord was angry with me also on your account. That's when Moses got angry with them, and he struck the rock in anger. And God said, Moses, you are not being respectful. That's going to cost you entrance into the promised land. You guys have cost me the promised land. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he'll enter there. Encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones, who you said will become a prey to, and your sons, who, have, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall enter there, and I'll give it to them, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn around, set your foot for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. It's interesting the way that God's patience keeps extending. And then, you know, eventually there comes a point where God says, ah, I'm done with you. And that's the point that they reached. Now, as soon as Moses told them that it was going to cost them the promised land, look what happens in verse 41. But you said, ah, we've sinned. We'll indeed go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. Every man of you girded on his weapons and regarded it as easy to go up into the hill country. They thought they'd get away with this, but God made it sure. No, you're going to pay a price. Verse 42, the Lord said to me, say to them, don't go up and fight for I am not among you. Otherwise, you will be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, but you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord again and acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do, like bees chasing down Winnie the Pooh, you know? I like that scene, you know? They chased you down and crushed you from Sa'ir to Hormah, which means... Destruction. Horma means destruction. Matter of fact, the root word of horma, like if you've got something dedicated to destruction, is the word harem. And it's also the same word, like if you had your king's harem. They're dedicated. They're dedicated. But sometimes the word means dedicated to destruction. So the word horma means destruction. Because they got crushed by the Amorites. Then you returned and you wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days. The days you spent there. Basically, 146, and you were there in that area for the next 38 years. They realized they had blown it. But by then, too late. Lesson for application. Always trust God.
You may not understand, you know, how and why something is happening, right? There's all kinds of things where we say, oh, this is terrible. And there are a whole lot of things that happen in life that are terrible, uh, humanly speaking. Well, that doesn't mean that God's not in control. I mean, if you know your Bible, you know, we look at the entire book of Ruth and we see poor Naomi going through all of this misery. In chapter 1, verse 6, you know, she says, the hand of the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. You know, when she returned in, you know, beginning in chapter 1, verse 6, she didn't realize that God was going to bring the Savior of the world through her family, through Ruth and Ruth and Boaz and Obed and Jesse and David. She didn't know that. We look back and say, look at that. We have a Bible. God was at work. You may not know why things are happening. So why should we trust God? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, he's faithful. And this is what Deuteronomy is all about. Number two, he's good. He did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's faithful, he's good, and he's powerful. He's sovereign. And we see his hand, his powerful, sovereign uh, hand at work throughout human history. So, you know, um, if we know the Bible, the problem is not that God has not shown us that we can trust him. The problem is us, isn't it? You can trust him. Well, that brings us to chapter 2, which was to be part of tonight's message. <laughs> but uh, that's okay. As I see right here, as we try to uh, negotiate our way, uh, you know, kind of manage our way through uh, what's going to be uh, the book of Deuteronomy, this is going to come for next week. He said, you said, praise the Lord. Amen. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, we are at the end of our time. At least it's not like uh, Gilligan's Island being there for three years. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. You are a trustworthy God. You have um, shown your faithfulness from Adam onward, and uh, you've given us the Bible to show us your faithfulness, the history. And that's why Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. You've given us the truth that we need to know so that we can uh, trust you and love you. So thank you for these uh, saints who have come here to be fed with the truth of your grace. I pray that uh, you would take... Uh, and, and, and bring that message of grace uh, uh, out for each one of us so that we can uh, be nourished on it, to rest in you, to know that you're a trustworthy God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.